episode 18 of Pastoring in a Pandemic. I'm your host, Nathan Longfield. Today is Saturday, June 20th, and we'll hear from Reverend Dr. Ron Reinstra, Professor of Preaching and Worship Arts at Western Theological Seminary, to discuss his insights and wisdom on how to think about the church reopening. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Pastor and Pandemic. It's Pastor, the letter N, Pandemic. You can follow me at Nathan Longfield. Listen to the podcast on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to download, rate, and review the podcast. We'll be back after a quick break to hear from Dr. Reinster about his advice for pastoring in a pandemic. We're now joined once again by Reverend Dr. Ron Reinstra, Professor of Preaching and Worship Arts at Western Theological Seminary. Ron, thanks for coming back on. You bet. My pleasure. Uh, so when we first talked, all this was kind of starting. We weren't, everything was don't meet in person at all. Now things are starting to reopen and churches are starting to think about this. Some have just kind of thrown open the doors. Some are being more cautious. Yeah. So I'm just curious what you think are some key considerations as churches consider reopening. Obviously, a lot of that depends on where they are geographically and how bad numbers look there. But within that and outside that, what are some key things that you think need to be considered? Yeah. It's, it, it, so, I, it, you know, I, I, I don't remember everything I said <laughs> at the last podcast, but I do remember the thing I sort of wanted to underscore. I want to underscore again, which is just to give everybody a lot of grace in figuring this out because we're all flying by the seat of our pants mm-hmm. and we're all... Uh, this is a brand new thing, or it seems anyways to us like a brand new thing. Historically, it's not a brand new thing. (laughs) There are pandemics in the church's history in the past, and there are ways that we can learn from them, but but this is the first time for us. So um, by that, I I guess I want to encourage folks who disagree to be gracious with one another. So, for example... Uh, I mean, I'm not even kidding. Last night, my own congregation had a meeting of the worship committee to begin talking about what would it might mean for us to re- reconvene. And um, there were a number of people on the team who said, well, if what we're talking about is we have to be six feet apart or more and we have to wear masks so that we don't see each other's faces and we can't sing and actually the CDC recommendations encourage not even to have congregational recitation. So mm-hmm. uh, my church is a fairly liturgical church, so we have a lot of back and forth between the preacher and the congregation. Well, that means we don't do much of that, and no communion. And, and, and when you add all that together, there were a number of folks who were like, it isn't worth it. Mm-hmm. What we're doing right now with with our Zoom worship is is fine, um, and others were like, "No, I am so eager." And those restrictions uh, uh, don't outweigh the wonder of getting together again. Mm-hmm. And and so we had sharp disagreements on the team, and it was important for us to be gracious with one another who who had different responses to all of this. Mm-hmm. Like that's the that's the primary thing that I want folks to sort of take away. 
Yeah. How was that navigated? I'm wondering the, the graciousness, was that easily received? And I mean, that might be just the relationships you all have on the committee, but talk to a number of pastor friends who that is not the case they're dealing with between congregation members and consistories of it's let's not open for years. Let's open right now. Restrictions, no restrictions. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I personally it, it was fine in my, in, in, in this particular situation okay. last night. Um, but I, I absolutely, like you, I talked to churches and pastors and congregants and other places where, you know, there's sort of a, um, uh, the, the, folks are really eager and they're willing to take on more risk and other folks. Uh, in fact, I've talked to a number of folks who are responsible for preparing online sorts of worship things, and they have found that not having a five-hour block on Sunday of responsibilities gives them a weekend that they never had before. <laughs> and so they're not eager to run back hmm. to regular worship. Uh, um, <coughs> and my college roommate told me the other day about folks in his congregation who sort of um, uh, have given this a political gloss. Mm -hmm. So uh, th this is about religious liberty, and we're so glad we can get back together again. And uh, I'm thrilled that the body of Christ wants to to assemble again. Um, but I, I'm I'm wary of letting those those identity political identity markers um, push us in in one direction, shutting down, or in another direction. No, let's all get together and and sing without masks as uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there are theological and health considerations that should be paramount. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess back to sort of the original considerations outside of theological health, or maybe what are some of those theological considerations? Um, I yeah, think the right. health ones are the same ones we're dealing with everywhere in general. Right. But So um, I've, I've been aided in my thinking about this, that there are a number of resources that, um, that, that have helped me think through some of these things. Uh, and I'm happy to send you links uh, to some of this stuff, but one document in particular that was produced, and now I'm going to have to switch my screen so I can see it. <laughs> um, one document in particular, there we are, um, is called Resuming Care-Filled Worship and Sacramental Life. And it's put mm -hmm. out by a collection of people, an ecumenical consultation uh, of Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians and Baptists. So a, a whole collection of people uh, and and they name four theological considerations, which I find really helpful. Uh, and the first one is um, love, hmm. love of neighbor, and love of self. So th that theological consideration pushes us towards um, erring on the side of caution in terms of accidentally infecting other people. Mm -hmm. um, Another theological consideration is the incarnation and how the body of Christ is actually an incarnate thing mm -hmm. and how we are embodied people and gathering in the virtual ways that we have is um, unmistakably less satisfying 
than, than gathering in person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are some who dismiss that altogether and say, actually, no, Bedside Baptist is fine with me. I'm, I'm okay with just watching TV worship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there's a theological consideration that says, no, actually, the assembly needs your presence, your body, uh, in, a, in a common place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two other considerations. One is inclusion. Um, so Jesus, in particular, was keen on including people who were generally excluded mm-hmm. uh, in his society. And so we have to be careful that whatever actions we take don't, again, accidentally exclude communities. So um, communities of people who are not tech savvy have felt excluded. Poor communities that don't have the technology, they don't have fast internet. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so inclusion is another important theological consideration. And then finally... Um, I think this is important. Beauty. Mm. Uh, beauty draws us into the holiness of God. Mm. And um, beauty can come in simple and stark ways, in silence, but it can also come in the wonderfully complex things that we do at worship when we have a choir or a worship praise band or, or uh, and and. Um, it's important for us to think about how we can maximize occasions for allowing beauty of whatever sort to draw us into the holiness of God in worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when uh, when we talked last, kind of before we realized we couldn't meet in person at all, you had proposed some ideas of like house church and things like that. And it's been interesting to me that we've moved from when we started needing to meet less together, that was the first reaction. But now that we can kind of meet together, the first reaction is how do we get the whole church together, it seems like. It's not what's an incremental step where we're gathering. I've seen some churches meet outside as a first step, but are there sort of, you know, a house church model, something else that can hold better the tension of those four theological concerns? Yeah, so, you know, um, I have... Maybe in your own life, uh, in my life, it has been me and my wife and my son and his girlfriend. And that's all I have any regular contact with in physical presence for Mm -hmm. these months. But we're now starting to um, open our circle a little bit. We're saying we're going to have a fire in the backyard. We're going to try to still stay socially distant, but my daughter and and her husband are going to come over. Mm-hmm. Uh, my neighbor and his wife are going to come over. So two additional households. And it seems to me that as an interim model for churches, that would actually be a really good thing to do until, until we have uh, a vaccine or effective treatment regimens for this thing to say, okay, well, pick two other families in your church or two other household groups or let's just say seven other people (laughs) (laughs) um, other than you, whether that's six single people and whatever. Um, 
but but pick that group and say we're going to meet that group in my living room and we're going to set up a laptop and we're going to participate in the common worship service so it's still whatever your church is doing virtually but we're doing it in a slightly larger household that that interim thing feels to me totally appropriate and mm-hmm. it in fact, as incremental stages, like I talked about last time, meeting in households was the default for the church uh, at its at its birth. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, doing something like like that, I think, would be great as an incremental step. And I actually would hope we wouldn't lose something like that mm-hmm. when we finally have full freedom to meet all together. Mm-hmm. Because I think that those smaller gatherings allow for an intimacy and an accountability that is often absent in larger groups. Mm-hmm. I think that also could create space for some of those groups that can be excluded because of different technical reasons where you can, you know, quote unquote, bring someone to church, right? Into right. the house where you have fast internet or you have someone who's comfortable with it and create a little bit more of that community in that way too. Um, exactly. For sure. um, right. So hospitality, as we kind of talked about, is a key thing within this, not only caring for people, but I've wondered with churches that do want to open up the church immediately. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe you usually have one service, you split it to two, so there's fewer people there. But unless you have some sort of sign-up sheet for who's coming to what service, you can't control that. People are going to go to the service that's closer to the normal service time. (laughs) And then even if you go to the sign-up sheet, right, like, if you have a visitor, it's like, oh, sorry, you can't come to church this week. Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, I've seen I've seen some churches that do that. That some very good friends of mine uh, do something like that, where it's you know text this number or text worship to this number, and you'll save your spot at the nine o'clock service or mm-hmm. the eleven o'clock yeah. service or whatever. And and um, yeah, t- I, I, once again, I want to have grace. I get that. Uh, there, people are being responsible about being socially distant and all that. So that's great. Um, I'm mindful that um, if my church did that, I would be the type A person who, like, the day I found out about signing up, I would sign up. But not everybody in the world <laughs> is like me. And there are plenty of people and there's nothing wrong with them. They are not sign-uppers. That's yeah. just not who they are. They, and, and, but they want to come to church, too. It's just that they aren't sign-uppers. Yeah. So th- that feels to me, um, you know, falls under that heading of, of inclusion that we talked about before. Yeah. Like, is that, is, that in a, is, that a, is that actually a hospitable way mm-hmm. of, of opening church back up? And again, I, I, I'm asking that question without giving it a firm answer, mm-hmm. though obviously my, I, I've obviously tipped my hand. I, <laughs> I think it's, it's not hospitable and inclusive of everybody. Yeah. But it might be that's one of those mitigating things where we just say, you're right, it's not hospitable to everybody. But it's hospitable to a whole bunch of people, mm-hmm. and we want to do something for them. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think one of the other things that I actually talked about with another pastor a couple weeks ago is how you balance the in-person gathering with those who are at a nursing home and can't come in person or don't feel it's safe to come in person. Um, and in his context, he's the pastor. He's also the tech person. And he's like, so I want to keep, like, they're doing Zoom worship. He's like, I want to keep doing that for those people. But does that mean for the congregational prayer where people can raise their hands and thing, I've got the computer here and the congregation there, and I'm balancing both of these. And I know of one church that they started worshiping in person again. And if you were online, you had a completely different service. You had some other pre-recorded sermon that they found online that was on the same text. And I'm like, wow, that like you're in a different community right now. Like this isn't yeah, one right. worshiping body. Um, so I feel like the only real option is to stream the service then. Right. But it's, yeah, there's a ton of headaches to figure out depending on yeah. your tech and your competencies and all yeah. of those things. It, it, you know, so one, I mean, I thought it was, there was a funny moment in, in this meeting that I had with my congregation's worship committee last night where we laid out all these, well, we could do this or we could do this or we could do this or we could do this. And we named that that would essentially be completely different worship experiences for these different groups. Mm -hmm. the, the people who are meeting via Zoom, the people who are gathering in uh, socially distant or physically distant ways on the patio at the church and so on and so forth. And um, what was interesting to me was that uh, the committee as a whole didn't want to say no to any of those options. We, we wanted mm. to leave them all as possibility, which of course left the person in charge of worship at the church the worship coordinator just um, feeling this heavy burden of so I'm supposed to be responsible yeah. for all these. Right. Not just Sounds like a church committee, people, yeah. But, but four different types of services. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, there are resource issues involved mm -hmm. when you want to do something like that as well. Yeah. Part of what I'm wondering within that is. I discussed this a little bit with Chuck actually in the last podcast, but how can pastors navigate this conversation when you've got so many pressures on both sides? Um, I mean, as you mentioned, it gets really political in certain conversations and certain congregations. And, uh, and Chuck mentioned how you got all the tension to this and now the events of the last three weeks adding attention right. politically right. and culturally. And yeah, a number of pastors talked to us like how, how do I balance these people and meet both of these needs and care for these well when I can't just be like, well, here's a practical thinking about worship. It's like, that's, that's not the thing they want to receive. Right. So yeah, I, I guess what, what do you think there? It, it, so I don't know that I'll have any, um, I know I won't have any more wisdom than Chuck does <laughs> <laughs> About this in particular, I, I, I do think that pastoral conversations that um, that have political overtones and I, I okay, you have heard me say in my in my preaching class, whatever you're gonna say, when you step into the pulpit, your your internal 
monologue should be this. To quell your anxiety, just love your people. Mm -hmm. Just love them. You're going to love them with what you say as a preacher. You're going to give them Jesus love. So it's not just sort of generic love. It's Jesus love. But um, it seems to me that that pastoral sensibility should inform the difficult conversations as well that you have to have about how we're going to do worship. Mm -hmm. Um, You disagree with me about how we're going to do this and whether we should be wearing masks or whether we should be singing or speaking or whatever. I I hear that and I love you. Mm -hmm. Should be the subtext of whatever the text actually is. And, and I think that may go a long way towards having the tense conversations be received all right on by both parties. Yeah. I'm wondering within the tenseness of that, um, you're not going to have a Menard style guard that says, are you wearing a mask when you come into church? Right. So like, is it just, we're requiring you to wear masks, but when you walk in without one, I mean, it can be done gracefully of asking, Hey, we really want you to wear this, but you also, the person may just simply refuse. And so it just creates, I guess it's less of a question more of, I feel for the pastor who gets put in that situation because it's impossible. And so, you know, so let's just, let's just take that one single example of wearing a mask. Yeah. It seems to me the hospitable thing for the church to do is have masks available Mm -hmm. for people and, and, um, you know, invite them to wear one if they didn't bring one on their own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it feels, so my observation going to grocery stores and whatnot is that, okay, people have their masks, but it's drooping below their nose. And I'm like, that's like, that's like, you're not actually wearing the mask Mm -hmm. (laughs) if it's that way. So, you know, it, it is a question of are we willing to give up a bit of niceness mm-hmm. so that there are people who will say to those folks, do you mind um, actually wearing this mm-hmm. or wearing it correctly um, for the sake of loving your neighbor? Right. I understand that this is an inf- – I understand that it's inconvenient. I understand that it inhibits – all sorts of things, breathing and singing and so forth. But, but the best medical information we have right now mm-hmm. tells us that it's really wise to have these things on. So right. c- can, can you submit to that wisdom? I mean, you're, you're right. There aren't that many churches that would have a mask, uh, you know, deputy uh, wandering around the church to make sure people are doing that. But, um, maybe that would be an okay thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious. I think right now the wisdom is still, you don't have communion in person at least. Um, but I mean, when all this started, there were a lot of conversations about what do we do about the table during this time? Um, yeah. Do we do it virtually? Do we fast yeah. for a time? Um, and I, I'm thinking like, like, especially if a church took the fast approach but now we're meeting together like, oh, we can break this fast. It's like, well, actually, maybe we can't. 
And unless yeah. it's like we're outside and everyone brings their own elements and there's something like that, like, which is still a different experience of the table. So yeah, yeah I, I guess what's, what's your thinking with the fasting versus not, which how to do this if we are somewhat gathered? Right. So, you know, um, uh, congregations, that belong to um, communities that are liturgically conservative. So Roman Catholic, uh, Orthodox, mm -hmm. uh, many Episcopalian congregations, and then a smattering of Methodist or Lutheran or Reformed congregations. Um, their understanding of what's going on at the table will push them in the direction of we're still fasting until mm -hmm. we can actually commune together. Mm -hmm. um, now, one interesting theological consideration is that uh, the church has long held that you don't need to have both bread and cup mm -hmm. in order to participate in communion. You can participate, as they say, in one kind. Um, so, given that that's the case, such congregations might be able to participate by having, um, you know, carefully prepared uh, communion wafers. Mm. Um, and everyone gets a wafer. It's they, they were in a package, <laughs> in a sterile package. They were placed on a plate. People come forward and they serve themselves. And don't touch any of the other wafers and so on. So again, you say a very different experience of the table, but people who for whom it's still a big deal, um, the hygiene issues with the cup are much more complicated than right. they are in a cup up than they are with the bread. Right. So yeah. if you do the shot glass cup, you could figure out an right. approach. But exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then uh, those who are sort of in the liturgical middle ground, which generally speaking involves Lutherans and Reformed and Presbyterians mm -hmm. and, and, and Methodists, um, we have been theologically all right with, with having our own communion elements. We recognize the weakness of the symbolism um, that we're not sharing a common cup and a common loaf. And yet we also recognize the, the mystery of the presence of Christ um, is still accessible to us in our own homes. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are plenty of folks for whom, um, oh yeah, I, I mean, um, bread and, and juice at home, or maybe a cracker mm -hmm. and uh, orange juice, or, it, I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, the, so the, the particular elements and, and even whether we do it or not is a matter of, of indifference, mm. or at least adiaphora. It just doesn't make yeah. any, it, it's, it's not important that, that many, of, many such communities don't have communion every week. So it isn't really a question. When they gather, the hygiene issues of sharing communion is, well, we're, we're not going to do it. 
you know, we only do it once a quarter anyway, so we'll wait three months to see what the CDC says in September. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not actually, and I'm deliberately not saying, well, this is what I think folks mm -hmm. should do. Yeah. I, I, I simply want to lay out a, a range of possibilities. Um, I am, I'm ambivalent myself. So I'll tell you, I, I'm ambivalent myself. I, when we have our communion services at my church, I have bread and wine here at home and we share it here mm -hmm. amongst those who are, are um, and I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also be okay with, yeah, this is a time for fasting mm -hmm. um, until we can all get together again. I think I would be, when we all gather again, I would be inclined in a, so, in a physically distant masks on, no singing worship service, I would be more comfortable not having communion altogether. Mm -hmm. I would be more comfortable with that, frankly, than um, prepackaged wafers and sippy cups uh, on a table that we all had, um, that, that feels like it loses so much of what the, uh, of what communion is about. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. This makes me wonder about, um, coming to the font. I imagine with kid, people who have kids born or just before this, they're eager to come even in traditions. I don't see the font as salvific, but as, you know, entrance into the community and the family, but unless your parents the one baptizing you, like, you have to hand off the kid to someone else pretty, like, there's going to be logistical nightmares there. Um, yep. So is it just we wait and we trust God's promises in the waiting? Um, That's a great question. You know, uh, and my, my inclination is, yes, you wait. Uh, so, indeed, uh, again, in uh, Christian historical practice um, for centuries, uh, you couldn't get, well, you could get baptized, but many folks waited for baptism until the bishop would come to town. Right, yeah. And, and then you had both baptism and, um, oh, no, I'm going to embarrass myself by not remembering the word. Um, well, I'll, I'll remember in a minute. Um, but, but in any case, uh, Folks might be baptized, but they they wouldn't have this sort of confirmation, okay. <laughs> right? They, but they wouldn't be confirmed by the bishop until the bishop came to town. So you'd have a baptism for an infant, but the infant would be five years old before the bishop would come into town to confirm. This is how, frankly, the confirmation and baptism separated themselves so that you had mm. in many parts of the church an infant baptized but then, for example, in our tradition, uh, you get confirmed when you're a teen mm -hmm. or when you're on the cusp of adulthood or something right. like that. Um, but early on, in the earliest time, both those things happened together. Mm -hmm. But lots and lots of folks deferred baptism. So you can read funny stuff in the Church Fathers about um, folks waiting to be— and this was because of a theological understanding 
that baptism actually washed away the sin that you had committed up to that point. Right. So they would wait until, quote, the storms of youth had passed. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then they would be baptized, <laughs> feeling like, okay, now I think I can avoid all the really bad sins that I know teenagers are prone to. Right. Uh, all of that to say that a delaying of baptism um, is, is a, has a long tradition mm -hmm. in the church. Okay. Um, and I would far prefer a delaying of baptism to these squirt gun baptisms that I've seen pictures of on the internet. Gosh. <laughs> right? yeah. So you have people standing right. 10 feet apart and the pastor literally with this squirt gun blaster thing uh, aiming it at the baby. Being wow. held by the parents. I've missed those. It's probably better for my emotional health. Yeah, um, it, it, I mean, I think I think both that and the let's make sure that we have little wafers and little sippy cups that are both of those seem to me to focus too much on the actual act. Hmm. The, the the so what's important is that I actually have bread, that I actually have a bit of of, of juice, uh, as opposed to that we come together as an assembly uh, in a meal in remembrance and mm -hmm. communion and hope. Yeah. Um, and those things can't be entirely separated, but it feels to me like um, the squirt gun baptism and the, the other things are focusing too much on the stuff yeah. and not on what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess kind of to close, do you have any Final thoughts, um, things we haven't talked about that you think would be helpful for pastors, consistories to ponder as they look at how to faithfully open or questions they need to make sure they're asking sort of thing. Well, we touched on it earlier, and I guess it would, it would be this. Um, if there are practices and habits that have begun to form during this time that seem commendable. Hmm. Um, uh, and they can be all sorts of things. They can be, I love um, someone saying, uh, I love getting together with my family and looking at the church bulletin for the service that we're about to participate in beforehand, mm. pre preparing to worship instead of just going. Mm. Um, that, that would be a wonderful habit that I think pastors can encourage their congregations to continue mm -hmm. in whatever form worship takes in the coming years. And um, as we talked about, the small household gatherings might be another wonderful practice. Um, as we come together again, the, the sharing, whether it's live stream or Zoom or whatever technology you use to enable shut-ins and sick people and other vulnerable populations to still participate in a not full way, but still somewhat, I, I, we, should, we should absolutely continue doing those sorts of things. So I guess my advice to pastors would be to try to identify what habits mm. are beginning to form and practices that they've engaged in that they think even when things go back to something like the way they were, is 
is there a way to continue those and continue to nurture them? Um, maybe it's an added piece of work, mm-hmm. but maybe it's worthwhile work. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us again, Ron. Yeah. You bet, Nathan. That will do it for today. Thanks for listening. Ron provided a number of pieces of advice and wisdom today, and also offered a number of links and resources that are in the show notes below. To keep up with everything on Pastoring in a Pandemic, you can follow us on Twitter at Pastor in Pandemic. You can follow me at Nathan Longfield. Be sure to download, rate, and review the podcast. You can listen on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in a bit for more about how pastors can best pastor in a pandemic. Grace and peace.